In this podcast episode of Hole in the Air, we learn about an organization that is helping migrants near the border between the United States and Mexico. On September 15th, the Hole in the Air podcast team of Renee Nahum and Paul Michael Newman talked with Jocelyn Duarte and David Hiron of the Salvadoran American Leadership and Educational Fund, or SALIF. Jocelyn is SALIF's executive director, and David is its vice president. For more than 20 years, SALIF has been greatly respected for its vital efforts in Los Angeles, efforts that continue even while SALIF members, on their own time, do what they can to address the crisis at the border while helping those who are most vulnerable there. This is Hole in the Air, and we're really pleased to have some wonderful guests today. There are many who have gone to the border to help those who face all kinds of challenges. There are different organizations, there are individuals, there are no doubt churches and synagogues and and political clubs and all sorts of people trying to help those in need at the border or near the border. Um, But we're honored to have a couple of persons who are associated with one such organization that's doing tremendous work, Jocelyn and David. I would like to ask you to both maybe discuss the uh, organization and and then we'll really get into the particulars of the work you're doing uh, on the border. So, Jocelyn? Well, I'm the executive director of the Salvadoran American Leadership and Educational Fund, SALEF. And for 24 years, we have been an educational fund. We are the very first Salvadoran American scholarship fund. We focus really around civic engagement and bringing democracy to El Salvador. Um, a lot of the work that we do um, here in Los Angeles is around um, education, uh, also uh, ensuring that our that our community is fair represented in all different you know at all different um, in different spheres additionally we also work um, transnationally and we ensure that as monitors um, in elections that the democracy process in El Salvador takes place um, during different elections so that's kind of a little bit of what we do and so clearly you do all kinds of work benefiting all kinds of people here in Los Angeles and even as you said, around the world, internationally. Um, But I think it's fair to state that because of so much of what has, because so much has happened at the border, especially in the recent couple of years, uh, much of it, frankly, instigated by some of the political forces here in this country, um, that there has been undoubtedly uh, seen both a challenge and a need where, I guess you could perhaps just ignore that and just do the work here in L.A., but that you've been going to the border and helping those. And maybe, David, can you tell us a little bit about the border work in particular and introduce yourself? Uh, Yes, thank you, Paul. Uh, My name is David Hiron, and I'm the vice president of SALIF. And uh, I've been volunteering there for roughly five years-ish, between four and a half and five years uh, and in my uh, day job, I work for the city of Los Angeles uh, as senior advisor to Councilmember Mitchell Farrell, and he represents the 13th district, uh, one out of the 15 council members in Los Angeles uh, that is the policy arm and the legislative branch of the city. And we're in charge of the laws, obviously maintaining the district and everything underneath uh, and under the sun of running a city. Um, I came to volunteer at Salif because... 
Uh, it's a little bit of a funny story. Salaf was part of the work that Salaf does, as Jocelyn mentioned, is um, you know promoting and working for Salvadorans and El Salvador. Um, sometimes, at many a time, the organization has brought dignitaries or you know the vice president of El Salvador, the foreign minister, what have you. And there happened to be a visit from uh, the foreign minister of El Salvador, and she came to council. And my boss, Councilmember Joe Farrell, happened to say uh, into the mic that he's so proud to have two Salvadorans on his staff. And the executive director at the time, who is now president of the board, uh, Carlos Vaquerano, beelined right for me. And we had a, a quick conversation, and I've been involved ever since. Um, Paul, as you mentioned, and as Jocelyn mentioned, the work of the organization is varied. And recently, in addition to the scholarship work and really community building that Salaf does here in LA, uh, which, as Jocelyn said, has been going on for 24 years. Uh, we've recently, you know, in large part due to the federal government, uh, have taken humanitarian missions to Tijuana. We've gone through Tecate. Um, Jocelyn, in particular, has visited several detention centers across the United States. Uh, and I'm, of course, referring to the asylum policy that was in the news recently, as a seven to two Supreme Court vote, uh, giving the federal, the Trump administration, even more leeway to, you know, some would say bottleneck the process. I'm sure others would say, you know, make it better, quote unquote. But again, we've done a lot of the work that Jocelyn and I and our uh, colleagues have done at the border is really as a result of those policies that have been enacted recently. How often do you find yourselves going to the border? So this work actually started about a year ago um, when the first the caravan that was being, um, you know, utilized as a political tool for the midterm elections, if everybody recalls that. Um, utilized by the by the, by the current administration yeah. to scare, scare people as a scare tactic that we were being invaded and they were all coming to vote in midterm elections. Right. Like they all planned it. So um, so we started assessing the situation down in Tijuana. Tijuana is a border town. So, you know, that, you know, as a, as a city, they've been around about less than 50 years. So a lot of the people there, you know, are migrants. It's a transitory, transitional space. Um, so we know for a fact that, you know, migration is, has it's always happened. This is not the first caravan, by the way. It's about the 11th to 12th caravan that had happened. And so what we did is that I went down there. We assessed the needs of the shelter because we knew that there was already an existing network that it, that was there. Um, and we went in to see how is it that we can support. We knew that there was a lot of anti-immigrant sentiment among the Mexican community there. Um, the Tijuanenses were not at all happy because they had seen the first w the wave of, of people from Haiti that had come in. So they were just like, you know, upset. There's already high levels of internally displaced Mexicans there. So what we did was that we went down, we assessed how is it that we can support them better. And I think that that allowed us to create some sort of community amongst the uh, shelters and the people there that are doing the work. Um, and with that being said, you know, we developed a model um, where we, it was a trilateral um, uh, you could say a tri trilateral Friendship. effort um, and where it incorporates legal services, uh, humanitarian aid, which would encompasses like clothing or food or anything that we can to take to these shelters. And then there's also a medical component. So we um, put all of our resources together, which is uh, 
Salef, El Rescate, and Clinica Monseñor Romero, along with volunteer attorneys, to go down um, to Tijuana. And so each of these delegations that we go, we have that model. Um, and what we do is that we continue to maintain uh, communication with the shelters throughout the, you know, we, we were going down every four to six weeks, anywhere between there. Um, and it really re depended on how much money we were able to raise, because as you can understand, as, as nonprofits, our money is really tied to the services here and so a lot of people were saying well you know there's so much great need here why are you going to the border but it it only takes you one visit to go down there to realize the atrocities that um, this administration is committing against these these human beings that are fleeing uh, countries who are basically it's a cycle right because it's a u.s intervention you know our parents you know a lot of people at salaf um, including david our parents are a product of the civil wars that were funded by the u.s so it's if you really put it into context this is happening again in terms of what happened in the 80s and people being displaced in this continuation of displacement of people due to um systematic violence so are the people you visit in the shelters are they all south of the border yes the people that we have we we focus on tijuana just because we don't have the resources to go any further we know that there's a lot of people in nogales um prior to what happened this week where the two injunctions that were um put in place to allow asylum seekers to come and wait here for their court um that was struck down and we have a large uh, number of people that are just kind of bottlenecked at, down there for multiple reasons because um some of them there's a percentage of them that are coming for asylum but they really don't qualify for asylum and and they're they're not eligible for asylum and then there's another part of them that because of the family separation that was happening were opting to stay together um as long as possible and holding off to ensure that um their families stay together so you mentioned that you go down to the shelters are mm -hmm. you also being allowed to go to the detention centers so people aren't being detained on, in the side of Tijuana. What happens is that they are being excluded from the process of reaching um, CVP or the border, right, where they can, where you turn yourself in for asylum. So people were not being allowed to go to that, which is their right. International law says that they can seek asylum. And so they're basically being either displaced on the street, so they're, you know, in encampments, but then they were being very heavily policed by Mexican, Mexican police or by immigration. And so they were being uh, basically picked up and put into these different shelters or off to what we saw, which was um, Benito Juarez, which was the very first like makeshift a shelter, and then the second one that was called Barretal. So they're not being put into detention because what happens is, let's say you are seeking asylum and you get picked up by immigration, what will happen is that they'll go ahead and just deport you back to your country. You, uh, Renee, did you mean the detention here in the United yeah. States? Oh, the, de de the yeah. detention centers here where I have had the opportunity to to visit has been Pedestrian West, which is right at the San Isidro border, um, as well as Texas. Um, and in Texas, and, and the reason why I visited those is that's where I visited detention centers where unaccompanied minors um, are housed through the Flores Settlement. The... Uh the percentage of people coming uh, to the border in hopes of, of uh, coming over here legally or, or, or not, um, 
What percentage is from, uh, originates from El Salvador, would you say? Do you have any idea? And also, the people you help, that you work with, uh, do you draw some sort of line of distinction if they're from El Salvador or not? Just like we are here, we serve our, our name with with uh, very much with a lot of pride is we're the Salvadoran American leadership right but uh, Salef but we serve everybody anywhere any immigrant um, from any country is welcome to come in and walk in and receive services our scholarship fund is only for Central American Latino Latino youth but other than that all of our services are for all so the the same we, we model that when we go to Tijuana who are, who is in Tijuana you might ask yourself are they only Central Americans no there are there there are a high percentage of what is known as the Northern Triangle, right? Honduras, Guatemala, El Salvador. And then you have a lot of internally displaced Mexicans from Southern Mexico. And then we're also seeing a lot of people from Venezuela, right? Um, smaller number of Nicaraguenses. And then we're seeing a large population of people from Haiti, as well as from other African countries is what we've heard at this moment right now. We haven't had the opportunity to serve um, African migrants at this moment, but we definitely understand that there's a uh, uh, one of the youth shelters is actually filled with African migrant children. Um, Have you- I was just going to add that um, you know when we started going or South started going at the end, I want to say near the end of last year, and w- one of our trips we happened to take council member current price, LA City Council, LA City Council member current price who represents South LA in uh, part of uh, Staples Center and that and, and all that. Uh, and on that trip, we went, as Jocelyn mentioned, to visit the Haitian community. And what you see in Tijuana, I mean, it's it's a huge city. Um, I, many, most Americans don't understand, how one, how international it is, how truly international it is, and two, how massive it is. Uh, you see people there that, Americans, frankly, that lived in America their whole lives and were deported. Military service members, people from all stripes, you see... Chinese people, Japanese people, uh, African people, Russian, everything. And it's, it's just actually remarkable to see that. Uh, but I mentioned current price because what happens with these wave migrations is that, you know, you, they get a lot of media here. And sometimes there's, you know, organized missions to help them. And then the, fo- the few that uh, can't get the services, happen to be lucky enough to get help or assistance, end up waiting there for in, almost in limbo, honestly. And uh, when I, I mentioned Kern Price because uh, Jocelyn and I took Councilman Price and Councilman O'Farrell to visit several of the shelter networks. And we, I mean, the issues we saw were, you know, lice, bed bugs, uh, uh, scabies, uh, epidemics of that, measles, um, people sleeping on the ground, on the floor. Um, you know, people wanting well, to give an example. One of the first trips we took, we bought a bunch of canned food and brought it to a shelter, and then the shelter didn't have a can opener. We would buy like frozen food. Shelters' fridge didn't work. We would, you know, sometimes the the restroom was a hole in the ground. Uh, we one time uh, we partnered with it, several times we've partnered with other groups. One group uh, is called uh, Migrantes Mexicanos. Sergio's group mm-hmm. and Sergio's group, uh, this uh, partner of ours, there was um, a building, a shack of a building called Hotel Migrante, a migrant hotel. And it was right by the border. It's right next to the border. And this place, we took Kern, Councilman Price and Councilman O'Farrell at, and it was a disgusting, rundown, 
just awful place and people were climbing over themselves to be there because at the time in the winter if you're outside you could just die and even though inside was you know all sorts of diseases and people were essentially you know living in their worst state there was still that was sought after real estate that you know i bring up because not only did we see it but then we partnered with folks to improve it and now that place has a bathroom it's got running water it's it looks completely different. If you had been there, Gil Cedillo visited two councilmen, Gil Cedillo, who we also took. Um, uh, again, it's uh, the situation we've we felt we feel directly that we have improved not only locations but people's direct lives, and have also enhanced the network of shelters because they all talk to each other. They all serve each other. They help yeah. each other. And uh, sometimes border, by the way, or, or to a yeah. degree, to a degree. Yeah, so we have, there's there's one particular, um, you could say like a bigger shelter that serves anywhere between 1,000 to 1,500 people a day in, with food, um, and this is helping people that are experiencing homelessness in the Tijuana area. With the caravan, they saw it double, and that is Desayunador Padre Chava. So they have a lot of resources, so what, why we like partnering with them is because we bring them, you know, whatever we have, food, clothing, and then they go ahead and share out to the other smaller shelters that are in the in the region that might need support. And they definitely help them out um, with other resources in terms of being actual shelter and recognizing the city. About how many people do you think are in those shelters right now? <sighs> Um, I think it's tough to say, like I said, so the Sayunador is, is a shelter that serves anywhere, like I said, from 1,000 to 2,000 people, depending on the flow, right, of migrants. And then, but they're only able to house about 75 men, because then you have to start thinking about, just like if we think about the city of Los Angeles and how they house, you know, people that are experiencing homelessness, right? Um, you know, they have a capacity and, and you know, men, Women and children are in one, men are in another. Um, then you have um, Madre Asunta, which is a shelter just for women and children, and they house anywhere between 100 and 250 um, mothers and children. Um, Inca does, Inca, which is the YMCA youth shelter, does anywhere between uh, the high levels they were having, they had about 60 kids, um, unaccompanied minors. Um, I think it's important to know that as we paint this picture of Tijuana, that in in Tijuana the the shelter system is heavily reliant on the Catholic Church, and that you know for better or for worse that overlay has many benefits and has you know honestly bad uh, components. As Jocelyn's pointing out, that the shelters are subdivided by really by group. I don't want to say class, but by group. Uh, one of the side effects you see is that the LGBT community is completely yes. disregarded, and disregarded in such a way that if 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 they if they the community members show their true nature, meaning if you're a trans woman and you're you know yourself, and if you're gay and have a gay man, and you haven't have a partner, you're immediately uh, placed. Essentially, you're just separated by either female or male, and you're encouraged. Yeah, you're encouraged mm-hmm. to not show who you are. Uh, especially, again, because a lot of the funding is religious in nature. One of the first trips we took, we went to one of the, you know, Jocelyn's explaining not only shelters, but safe spaces. One of the first trips we took, there was a, I forget the name of the safe space. Um, Caracol. Caracol, that's right. Caracol, where 
um, it, it was, I mean, it was a two-story place. And when we went in there, it was just packed with activity. There were people coming in and out. There were cooking, etc. It looked, you know, lively at the least. Uh, but what we what you didn't see right in the moment is that that place closes down because it's not a shelter. Mm-hmm. It's a safe space where people can go get food. During the day. They can charge their phone. But then they close the doors, kick everyone out because there's nowhere to stay. And uh, the reason I bring this up is because it was truly, you know, remarkable to see so many people sleeping on the sidewalk waiting for the place to open again. And it was really cold. You know, this past winter, December, January was cold in L.A. It was raining. It was It was terrible. Same, I mean, remember, this place is only 100 miles away. Exact same weather conditions. Uh, I mentioned the can and the can opener. There were times we bought shoes. People wanted socks. I mean, it was just like one thing after another. I think another. we got better after each trip. Yeah. Because we were able to, to, you know, sometimes when people, when there's a crisis, and that's exactly what we have at the border, and it's not something that ended after November. It's something that continues, and it's only getting worse because of, of this administration and its, you know, uh, way of u- utilizing our asylum laws as political tools, right, to they feed their base. They want to get worse. Yeah, they want it to get worse because they want to say we're invaded. They're being we're yeah. being invaded. So somebody out in like Minnesota will think that that's the case, right? When we Maybe. are not being invaded. But anyways, what I was gonna say is that. Um, you know, sometimes when we're, we want to, we want to help and we want to give. And so we are like, yes, this is a perfect opportunity to give what we think they need. But what I think what we've really learned is when it comes to, you know, serving, um, this, this population and, and helping these shelters really to listen and to really, um, put together and that allows us to put together our resources. And then, um, in times it it's not in kind it's not we're not going to take down their you know 50 jackets or which we did we've done like tents and blankets but it's um taking money to buy groceries and to buy you know make sure that every other shelters are stocked with food for a week um and sometimes that's what it looks like or it's medicine right we have to buy medicine it seems to me that you clearly go there with love uh but that any human being with compassion would feel probably outrage, anger, and 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 despair even or or you know sorrow and, and sadness, but that you don't have the time. You don't have the luxury. There's you th- find some capacity to try to help and that focuses your attention on the the pragmatic challenges. And so you probably still are heartbroken a lot, but you just go move forward and, and get the work done. Is that I think there's been a couple times during our trips where we like all of it. It's happened to all of us individually where, you know, I know that there's been times where I find myself crying and like I have to step away because it's too much. I think that this work is very personal for us, especially at Salef. Um, We were founded by somebody who fled a civil war. My parents felt, you know, fled a civil war. All of my colleagues, parents fled a civil war. We are the direct, you know, product of this diasporic movement from Central America. So to be there now as the second generation and being able to bring help to those people and understanding the the political, you know, the the forces of migration that have let them there and having that sometimes makes you feel very um like almost immobile because there's you know that you can bring them a hot meal maybe one day but that there's other things that we need to get back to here to Los Angeles to ensure that our community is engaged and is registered to vote and is out there and is you know engaged civically so that we can make a real change um, I would say that that's the reason the, you channel that like energy of 
of sadness and heartbreak into just going back and doing the next fundraiser and who do we have to ask and beg for money because that's what we do that's what I do certainly on Facebook begging people for money David begs yeah (laughs) I I want to ask you now but then I have a couple other questions and I'll come back to this again as sort of close up um First of all, is there a specific website or Facebook page? Or is there something people should look at to, to just engage directly with your information and Definitely. images? Definitely. You can visit our website at www.s, as in Sam, A-L-E-F, dot org, Salef, dot org. Um, and you can actually make a donation um, right on our website on the donate button. You can see some of the pictures and some of our blog posts. Um, that we, you know, of, of prior trips, you can follow us on social media, on IG, on Instagram. You can follow us on Facebook. Um, we're the Salvadoran American Leadership Educational Fund. You can donate through Facebook. Um, you can send us a check in the mail. <laughs> you can do, um, you can do a couple of things. There's a couple ways you could give to us. All of the work that we, I think we've been able to raise over $40,000 that has gone directly to help all of these shelters in the past year. And I think that... Um, on, on, by the way, all on our free time. This is all on our free time. And every time that the staff goes, when we go on the yeah. trips, none of the staffers, the professional women at Salif, from professors to social workers, are all doing it on volunteer because, as Jocelyn said, the programmatic dollars of Salif can't be tapped for it because if someone gives us a grant for community building in Echo Park, we're not taking that money to Tijuana. Mm-hmm. But also, uh, just based on what you said, it's also fair to say that qualified people who want to volunteer yes. can volunteer in all kinds of ways, both locally mm-hmm. but also conceivably going uh, on one of these. Yes, uh, absolutely. And, and what are those kind of people that, you know, lawyers, doctors, what, what do so you need? So I think that there's a lot of need for doctors. Um, we need people that are doctors that are going to go down and help also registered nurses. Um, there's a little Haiti needs a lot of help. Um, we are in the process of, of purchasing a hundred beds, which we still need some money for that. People are still living in tents inside of that church. It's a big like church and uh, the families are inside of tents. But the problem with the tent is that there's scabies. So in order for us to clean up, like make sure that that's a, that's a clean, uh, healthy space for the families and their 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 overall well-being we need to get them into beds into the other side of the shelter so we still are short a couple thousand dollars for the beds um but yes people can and so we definitely like medical professionals that will come down and help us treat these people uh, we definitely need um lawyers to come and speak to people about um you know what it, what it is to seek asylum in the United States, especially right now with the changing laws. And, and, you, and I assume being bilingual is, if not an absolute requirement, is obviously should be useful. It, it should useful, be, but, 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 we, but if people speak French, because we have people that are from Haiti, right. that's important. Sign and so, language. yeah, so it's not anything, mm-hmm. you know, and we definitely have people that can translate. I mean, that's definitely, we're not going to discourage anybody from going down with us um, to, to, to support because at the end of the day what we need is more people to come out to see what it is and see how is it that we if we can't impact necessarily right now our federal um, immigration laws and and create the change that we so desperately have been needing for decades um, that we can definitely do something locally right we can organize locally we can uh, take our resources locally and we can organize ourselves go down there and um, volunteer with a group like us to make a difference. You mentioned at the shelters that there are limits on how many people can be uh, in the shelter. And 
David, you mentioned also that the church is there, and it sounds like, to some extent, at least with some of the population, some of the communities, uh, that if they're not eligible to be, uh, or deemed eligible to be in a shelter, that they'll either be out on the street, or they might be uh, taken in somewhere in the context of the Catholic Church, or perhaps some other entity. But, or a gang uh, takes them. I'm sorry, what? Mm. Or there's the gang violence. Or the gang violence. That was my question. What happens to the people who are not able to find shelter on a given night? I'll I'll defer to Jocelyn on the specifics, but I will give a story that we... So Councilman O'Farrell, when he visited, he was responsible uh, through obviously just lending his name to the effort by helping a youth that had petitioned asylum and was caught and essentially was placed in detention uh, now, this particular youth happens to be here in Los Angeles at a place called Casa Libre, which is in the first district, and it's the only migrant shelter in Los Angeles County that deals with these, this specific population. Uh, but to your point, Paul, had this boy was, you know, he had, let's say, a cohort, a group of friends, and we had heard one of the reasons that we made sure to save this child, um, he was going to turn 18. In custody, and when you turn 18 in U.S. custody, you you're an adult now, and you're not an unaccompanied minor. And the unaccompanied minor uh, label is it's not just a, a description; it's a it's a legal term, really. Uh, he would have been sent to Honduras, and uh, in the streets of Tegucigalpa, which is the capital, uh, he probably would have died because uh, he was fleeing that. Um, but his friends had there was a actually it was a very well known story it was published. Uh, I forget, there was, I don't know if it was Mother Jones, I forget what, there was a major publication that ran a story on it where these kids were trying to cross and they, so they got caught by, uh, either enticed by a gang or something happened, but they were killed and they were beheaded. Uh, these kids, children, friends of this particular child that we saved. And when that was happening, we, you know, we moved everything to uh, negotiate with customs to have him released to Los Angeles. And that was through the work of our, our legal partner in all of this is a man named Peter Shea, and he is a well-known immigrant attorney who won the Flores, uh, or represents currently right now, the, the Flores v. United States case. And that goes back to 1996, which governs how unaccompanied youth must be maintained. And we made a reference to the, to the detention centers that Jocelyn visited. But um, that's a roundabout way of describing the many layers here. And if we don't help these kids, I mean, they're, they're, they could end up dying dead in the worst parts of Tijuana or who else knows. Uh, or also, it's possible that they could, you know, uh, live in the city and prosper. There are immigrants that do do that in, in Tijuana. But obviously, it's the odds are very slim. Yeah. These people f- uh, face tremendous challenges just to survive. Um, away from home uh, and away from a new home and in the face of some pitiless uh, words coming from this country, which are tragic. But to the extent that there are different communities represented as places of origin, have you seen much, if any, capacity so far for, let's say, people who are Haitian to be, I'm picking them at random almost Mm -hmm. arbitrarily, to be... uh, Gaining any kind, developing relationships with those who are maybe from El Salvador. Do you see any kind of interplay like that? I or? think that the best example you we also have to be very cognizant, and that 
that, you know, Mexico is very anti-black. So just like a lot of the Latin American countries where there's a negation of blackness in our countries. And so when they see people that are black, they're not necessarily providing them with the same resources. So they've been marginalized to a church that's really like on the inner, it's in a canyon. Um, Mm -hmm. So it's very limited access to a lot of resources and kind of like away from the city almost. Um, Well, so my best example would be Little Haiti and Little Haiti is um, a space where um, it's a church where you have Central Americans and you have the folks from Haiti. And yes, they do. They build relationships. They're organized. They have like, I would almost say like there are the women that are that organize, you know, the, the, the cooking. They do have two separate kitchens because they cook differently. Um, but they're very organized and they are, um, they serve almost as, um, I would say they help, um, Saida run the shelter. So they make sure that all of the families on one side are, are, are doing what they're supposed to be doing. They're, you know, cooking, cleaning, and they, they, they communicate very well. So yes, definitely they they work together. So though women perhaps in particular are vulnerable and, are uh, are endangered in many ways. They're also acting in a quite empowered way as much as possible. I think that and all I know. I think that as as women, you know, uh, there's always a, the agency that we can you know exhibit. Where while we are in a, in a limited space of where we might have power, we definitely can utilize you know our our gender to be able to overcome some of these these things. So I definitely think that women are are, are leading in the in that shelter and organizing, um, and they are the most vulnerable. Women and children are vulnerable, and then and then what ends up happening is because they are more vulnerable, then there's maybe a little bit more resources for them, and then that leaves the men that are single maybe that don't have families even more vulnerable because then there's less resources for them. So overall, all of the migrants are vulnerable because they are basically targets for, you know, either the narcos, the nar- you know, the narco, the the nar- the trafficking, human trafficking that's happening. Mm-hmm. So I would say that all of them are vulnerable, but yes, primarily women and children. And one quick question from me before getting to the closing round of if you have anything to add and getting your you to know, repeat the the uh, all the contact information again. Uh, our current president uh, Trump, uh, Trump, Trump, President Trump, Trump. Um, has uh, Any, made a point lately. After spending much of his time in office belittling Mexico and attacking the people of Mexico and the Mexican government in many ways, mm-hmm. he's made a point of recently appraising uh, Mexico for he says doing more. At the border, and I'm curious if you've seen any of that manifested when you've been there, uh, in terms of whether it's more troops or more governmental uh, presence and role. I, I think, to, well, first of all, um, thank you for that question, Paul. Our, I think uh, what most Americans don't realize is the Mexican government treats migrants very harshly. Already, you ask any migrant. How have you been treated in Mexico? And it's arranged. I mean, of course, there's wonderful people everywhere. I mean, of course. But for the most part, the institutional bias against migration, against migrants, against people of color, against the indigenous community, against the Caribbean community mm-hmm. is, is so real. Uh, when I hear President Trump say that, 
I, you know, with some, of course, I don't know, but I assume that it is much more heavy-handed in the south part of Mexico. Certainly in Baja California, which is the state where Tijuana is in, the institutional uh, racism and bias is so prevalent that uh, it's it's in an official capacity. We had a, I mentioned that we took Councilman Price and O'Farrell down there. We had the opportunity to visit with the head of immigration for Baja California. That and was... this man was, I mean, I was getting so upset. I could barely hold my anger in. He described children as drug addicts, yeah. as uh, criminals, that their government has to guard the Mexican community against this onslaught of, of criminals. And he was describing the folks so terribly. And we had been doing this work for months by then. I have yet to see a drug addict migrant. I've yet to see one. Uh, I'm sure it happens. Don't get me wrong. Obviously, people do what they do. But for the most part, it's not the case. But this man was describing to two L.A. elected officials in a not enough. It wasn't a formal meeting, but it was an informal, formal meeting. Obviously, he was there representing the government of Mexico, and it, it's just a stark reminder of uh, of the uphill, you know, climb that these migrants have to do with not only the dynamics of their of uh, their position and literally their status, but the fact that there's folks in the government who see them as as a burden, as a problem to be swept away immediately. I would add, if we look right now at Tapachula, the southern border, right, of, the, of Mexico, the U.S. has, you know, pu- really push is trying to push their border all the way down to Tapachula. You have, uh, I don't know, a couple hundred African migrants that are being that are being detained. Now they are in detention centers, are not being allowed to travel through Mexico. They need a uh, you need a visa to travel to Mexico through Mexico, and they're being treated at you know in subhuman conditions. Um, and I think that our, you know, our administration is doing everything in its power to, to attack migrants that are in transit and without understanding the, 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 the push and pull factors of why this is happening and giving foreign aid to the, the, northern triangle is not going to make this better right and if we really look at our asylum laws or we look at the people that actually seek asylum whose asylum is actually granted the number one uh, country would be china so when we look at the real numbers and we look at facts the truth is our immigration system has been broken and needs to be fixed and we really need to stop using immigration as a token right or as a, as a tool when it comes to you know campaigns and and people trying to get elected that they're actually going to do something because we had an opportunity to do something under Obama and nothing was done he was let's not forget that he was the deporter in, you know in chief so while we would gladly take him back now, right, and understand that the people that were deported at that time needed, you know, had some sort of background or, you know, right. priority. Uh, what, what I'm saying is that this needs to outreach everybody to the point that you get up and you do something about it because we cannot wait for it to, you know, to continue because we have to understand the underlying racism that is within when it comes to dealing with migrants. Yeah. And, and, and all uh, kinds of factors like climate change. Or we're just going to see more and more migration yeah. exactly. and more and more yeah. trauma unless more. we figure out yeah. how to 
look at these things with, with good heart and sophistication and understanding of the challenges of tomorrow and not just the, the hangover of, of all kinds of cliches and, and prejudices from years long in the past. And I think we have a global, I would say a global refugee issue. It's not just the U.S. and Tijuana. I think that there's, you know, refugees everywhere around the world that are that are, you know, people are being displaced that are, you know, fleeing wars. And we really need to be conscious of, you know, that we are all here on this one, you know, on this one world. And how is it that we are going to be better humans? Yeah. Uh, I would just add um, that uh, I think uh, being using migrants or immigrants as a political tool is a bipartisan uh, construct <laughs> when, uh, you know, Johnson mentioned the Obama administration, certainly to our frustration under Trump, he controlled Congress. He controlled everything. He controlled the white house, the yeah. both branches of the, of the, of the Congress, a majority in the Supreme court. And I, I don't even think a bill was introduced to fix the system no. because it's a good issue. It's a good politic issue. If you look at it just from a political lens, the caravan, all those uh, Fox News, it was con- the horde is coming, and then as soon as the election was done, that was it. You didn't hear a peep out of them, and uh, it's 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 sad but that he, these people are used this way. Yeah, he's still using it to fire up his base. When you especially see, especially as we his, get closer to an election, yeah, you see his rallies. I mean, he still uses it. But I, I do think uh, I'm not going to offer a grand defense for one party versus another. But I think there's a vast difference that we can see today. And and a lot of it has to do with whether you want to respect people or not and recognize the grievous circumstances so many are fleeing from. Now, having said that, uh, I I appreciate what you said, including, uh, you know, even while you were saying uh, in Mexico, a lot of the uh, historic uh, treatment given uh, migrants, given immigrants, has been harsh and 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 unjust. But there are, you said, good people. There are good there, there are many. There are, there are in this wonderful country, people there as that much, we work as, with. As much as we, we discuss certain agencies and, and administration, there, you know, you have to hope that there are people who can, re- if they don't yet recognize, they will recognize uh, what's at stake and will act in the best of manners. I'd love to have heard. We've run out of time for today, so maybe another time, Jocelyn. Uh, I say this because I, I know David well enough to know some of his backstory is. Uh, and, and and a lot of the good work he's done. Jocelyn, this is the first time I've met you, and I'd love a future point if we can hear how, what led you to uh, this work. I, I understand you, you mentioned your family uh, history to some extent, but I'm sure there's a really tremendously interesting story there and some of the things you've experienced uh, here in Los Angeles, apart from all that immensely, transcendently important work in, uh, in Tijuana and across the border and on both sides of the border. Love to hear that. But for now, I first of all want to thank you both so much for all thank you've done. You. And then I also want to, and for being here and being generous mm-hmm. with your time. And You're I'd, welcome. I'd also like to ask if one more time you can repeat where Our people website. can go to, to find out information and also to donate to this, tre- this tremendous nonprofit. So you can visit us on our website, www.salef.org. You can also follow us on Facebook. You can donate on Facebook. There's a donate button on there as well. You can follow us on Instagram at underscore S-A-L-E-F. 
Uh, I think we have a Twitter, but we really don't use that. So you can definitely connect with us and you can always give us a call at 213-480-1052. And also there's uh, our website has been recently revamped, but I was a lot of the new the news and update section has blogs that uh, that I wrote with Jocelyn and it has pictures. And if you want to see a little bit about what it looks like down there or the arc of this year, you can certainly take a look there. There are okay. pictures or video? Pictures, yeah. some videos, yes, and, and the blog describing what we did, how did we do it, who did we help. And as far as the relative absence of Twitter, I can only <laughs> say that there are some I can think of who would actually benefit from following your model of not being so much on Twitter. It's really hard to keep up. I mean, we're so small. I have like a, I have like one staff member that allocates like four hours of their time to social media. So Twitter is definitely very challenging for us. But you know what? Instagram's the place. We've yeah. gotten a lot of people to, you know, we have a lot of followers there. We're thankful for everybody to, you know, checking in. Um, all of the work that we do is very intentional. Um, and we really feel that as Central Americans, we should be leading this work. Well, I'm so proud that you Thank are here, you. part of our city and our our, uh, our community, as well as uh, proud of, thankful for the work you're doing. And uh, and I'm sure that that listen, that anyone who listens to this most or all who listen to this will feel the same way that you're doing something that's essential and and really our own consciousness and our consciences are at stake to ma- in making sure that some of these tragedies and so and so and this crisis itself that these things are not uh, rendered invisible. Or purely propagandized by folks who are there uh, spitefully exploiting the circumstance, but that instead there's some help, some refuge, some work being done uh, on all fronts, including legal, to, to make for better circumstances in the future, but also today for the people who are in most pressing need. So thank you again, everyone here, and, and uh, hopefully folks will contact you on on. Uh, consider contacting you via the Facebook and make a or, donation or, or go yeah. down and volunteer and help. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you so yes, much. Paul. And we'd love to come back if I think I heard that right. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. All Thanks. right. Thank you. Bye-bye, everyone. Thank you for joining us for this podcast. You can share a comment, question, or idea by emailing us at slenunciator at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. You can find more of our podcasts at slenunciator.com. Wherever you may be, have a lovely day.